Hey, Rarecast listeners. This year, Global Genes is bringing together its Rare Health Equity Forum and Rare Advocacy Summit for the Week in Rare, which will also include its Rare Champions of Hope Awards ceremony and annual membership meetings for the Global Advocacy Alliance and Rare Corporate Alliance. This is a unique opportunity to gather and engage with rare disease advocates and leaders in the same space for conversations. Join us September 18th to 21st in San Diego, California for the Global Genes Week in Rare. For more information, go to www.globalgenes.org and click on Events under the Connect tab. Hope to see you there. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Infectious diseases and microbial resistance represent major concerns in developing nations. The combination of globalization with the expanded use of antibiotics in resource-constrained environments is worsening the problem. In fact, hospital-acquired infection rates in some regions are three times greater than in the United States, and as much as 30% of all such infections are antimicrobial resistant. HDT Bio is developing immune activators and RNA-based vaccines to address this challenge with cost-effective and accessible medicines. We spoke to Chris Peary, co-founder and chief operating officer of HDT Bio, about the problem the company is seeking to address, its platform technology for producing safe and stable RNA vaccines, and the potential to use the same platform to produce immunotherapies for cancer. Chris, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about HDT Bio and its efforts to bring low-cost vaccines and immunotherapies for patients across the globe. Perhaps we can begin with the problem you're trying to address What's the need? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you've seen it most acutely the last few years in the face of the pandemic, um, manifest itself in different ways. The, the most acute of which is what, I, uh, what some call the last mile problem in different parts of the world. Uh, just, you know, simply getting patients to healthcare infrastructure is something of a challenge. On top of that, we see things like uh, population perception, when it, uh, particularly when it comes to vaccines, but, but different types of therapy, not just what is the nature of that um, healthcare intervention, but where it's coming from. And then on, layered on top of all of that, uh, in these scenarios where the, you know, the nature of the healthcare intervention is somehow constrained, Again, as we saw during the pandemic, the vaccine diplomacy comes into play, different, you know, the, the sort of haves and the haves nots negotiating with one another about who gets what and where. And, and all of that sort of comes together to prevent uh, you know, these medicines to find their way into the, the hands of the patients that need them. As you look 
for the reasons why these needed medicines and vaccines you're seeking to develop are not generally available in the developing countries you're targeting, why is that? Is are we talking about science, economics, infrastructure? What what are the drivers? Well, that's probably a little bit of both. I mean, of of course, uh, here in the U.S., where we do we have so much innovation ongoing every day, we're more often than not the first to see some of these new interventions. But um, as you point out, that uh, sort of the root of all of this is probably some level of economic polarization. There is, as a result, um, a sort of lack of supplier incentive in many cases. So, of course, so many of big pharma and other healthcare providers focus on top 10 healthcare markets because that's where they can realize the greatest returns on their investment. And then at the other side of the equation, there's the buyer's ability to pay. So in some of these um, Elmic countries, they just simply don't have the means to acquire the latest and greatest cell therapy medicines, for example. And then um, underlying all of that is the sort of technological shortcomings or gaps in those new inventions that prevent them from actually being delivered to those patients so that they aren't um, readily transported or stored in those different environments is also a barrier. What makes HDT Bio different? What's the business model that will allow you to bring these products to parts of the world that other biopharmaceutical companies don't see a profit in pursuing? Uh, I think it, you know, some of it comes to the margins and, and when you're a multi-billion dollar company, uh, the, the delta that one can achieve by addressing some of these smaller market economies is just doesn't move the needle enough to justify the effort. Um, so that we are a smaller earlier stage company does um, motivate. But of course, it's a, it is a part of our DNA here. You know, it's part of our mission to go out and try and improve access. And that we are a private company, I think also contributes. So we don't have public market pressures to increase revenues 5% year over year or what have you. And, um, and so we can pattern match a little bit our economics to those economics of the different uh, parts of the world that we seek to, to help bring uh, our inventions to. And I think that's a really important part of the business model is working with for-profit entities, ourselves a, a for-profit company, with for-profit entities in country who live in and operate within the economics of that region. And when you can align those incentives, then it makes it a lot easier to, to bring products to bear. Well, take a step back. How did HDT Bio come about? Well, interestingly, so we were born of, and, and my co-founders came from, and as well as members of our early team, came from the Infectious Disease Research Institute here in Seattle, which was a nonprofit. And they were do, trying to do many of the same things that we've been able to do at HDT from that setting. And they had a vision uh, that we we co-created together to to have a a go to market in a globe with a global perspective, but in a for profit entity, and 
at the time, this is circa 2019, we came together around and built the company around several unlicensed oncology assets and really went out into the world as an oncology company. And then, of course, in early 2020, the pandemic sets in and very quickly we pivoted to meet the need of the time in, in accelerating the development of our vaccine platform while still living that mission and business model. And then that's really what led to some of the early stage partnerships that um, has allowed us to accelerate the platform further still. HCT has platform technology to produce both RNA vaccines and therapeutics. Walk us through your Amplify mRNA vaccine technology and, and how it works. Sure. So core to the Amplify uh, vaccine platform is our Lion formulation technology. This is a, a patent tech, patented technology that was invented here at HDT that allows for a manufacture, manufacturing flexibility and product stability. Um, and we combine Lion with self-replicating RNA this is a special type of RNA that makes copies of itself once um, administered. And this allows us to increase the potency of the vaccine, as well as achieve really strong cellular immune responses. And when you put those two together, given the special localization that the Lion formulation technology enables, we see um, profound improvements in uh, product safety and, and reductions in reactogenicity. What advantages does this provide compared to existing mRNA vaccines? And, and how do these advantages enable you to target the markets you're pursuing? Well, I, I would start with that safety component. No doubt the, the success of the COVID vaccines broadly administered, which themselves were quite safe. Many of us experience the near-term reactogenicity um, and side effects that came with those this is something that, you know, HDT's amplified technology really improves upon. And then on top of that, the flexibility manufacturing and potency of the platform itself helps us reduce the cost of goods. This comes to then allowing us to pattern match economics to different marketplaces. Uh, the stability of the uh, product, once it's amenable to freeze drying, that also allows us to begin to address that last mile problem where in fact the product is stable for many months at simple refrigerator temperatures. You may remember also during the pandemic, some of the, the challenges with hyper cold chain storage and um, bringing vaccines even around the US um, as somewhat of a challenge. So we're, we're improving the stability there. And then when you put those two things together, it actually enables device integrations that we're just beginning to work on here at HDT with needle-free solutions like patches that can be more readily administered by patients themselves and, again, more readily distributed for access. A critical part of HDT Bio's approach is to establish regional partnerships for manufacturing and clinical development through the regulatory approval process. Why is that? Well, I think it starts with the latter. So the, the clinical development and regulatory approval processes in, in these different regions around the world can be quite distinct. And as a small company, we're 
not, we just simply don't have the bandwidth, nay, the expertise to go off and um, have the impact that we seek to as a part of our mission by ourselves. And so we, we rely heavily on our partners to um, bring the expertise and experience of, of navigating those environments. And then the other is the manufacturing you talked about that um, helps us scale more rapidly and meet the regional demand for product and technology. And then for a technology like ours that is relatively early stage, these partnerships and then the expertise that they bring in those regions and the speed with which we can come into clinical development and come to market also allows us to produce uh, clinical data that is supportive of the technology platform and us as a company. Out of these partnerships generally work who pays for what and what responsibility does hdt have versus its partners well it depends a bit on partner capability uh this being a, a really novel technology oftentimes they won't have the established capability or expertise in the discovery stage or, or manufacturing as yet and so we we work in the early parts of a collaboration to understand that capability and meet the needs of the partner with our own. So when it comes to early stage product discovery, uh, we're often contributing largely there. And then we'll sort of hand off product regional product development to the partner at the regulatory, clinical, commercialization layers again, to rely on their expertise in that environment, and then also to manage costs um, as they go to market. Your lead products are a series of COVID-19 vaccines in various countries, including India, Korea, and Brazil. Are these the same vaccines from country to country, or do they differ in formulation at all? The, the similarities between them are that they are all anchored in our Amplify vaccine platform technology. They all incorporate the Lion formulation and all rely upon HDT's, uh, as we call it, rep RNA um, API component. The differences kind of come down to sequence variation. So when we initiated clinical development with each of our respective partners in those territories, the pandemic were sort of at different stages and the epidemiology of their region were somewhat uh, distinct. And so we facilitated our partners sort of influencing the product development strategy in their respective regions. So there are subtle differences, um, somewhat akin to the differences we've seen between the primary vaccination series or the booster shots different folks have gotten uh, here locally. But otherwise, they're they're really anchored in the platform, the same platform technology. And where are you in development efforts? What's known about these from the studies you've done to date? Well, in India, the um, Amplify product has uh, achieved emergency use authorization. Um, in in Korea and Brazil and the U.S., we're finalizing phase one studies and we'll be initiating phase two studies soon. And by way of those clinical development efforts, um, I would say the safety has been well corroborated across all territories. And then in particular, in the phase three study in India, we saw the um, 
really well-performing humoral immunogenicity responses. These are the neutralizing antibody or antibody titers uh, that we expect to see from vaccination. And then as we've dug a little bit deeper in the U.S. phase one clinical trial, we've seen really promising responses from the platform vaccines um, in cellular immunogenicity. And it's the cellular immunogenicity that we're quite excited about. This is in part tied to the use of self-replicating RNA and is quite important in breadth of protection as well as immune memory. And then all of that has been quite instructive for our other ongoing preclinical development programs, in particular, uh, a recently announced collaboration between ourselves and BARDA and the DOD, wherein we're uh, advancing two new products in uh, Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever and Nipah virus protection that um, should enter the clinic early next year. The same technology could be used to enlist the immune system in the fight against cancer. Can you explain why many patients don't benefit from immune checkpoint inhibitors today? Well, that's yeah, that's a loaded question for sure. But uh, you know, I you know would point at the complexity of biology. So the way our immune system um, performs naturally, or in the somewhat altered state of a cancer patient is incredibly complex. And in spite of the tremendous success of checkpoint inhibitors as products, it, it is which is reflective of the importance of that pathway in the immune response against cancer, it is not the only pathway. And there are other pathways upon which it is dependent. For example, there was a publication, oh boy, maybe a year or more ago now, which showed the uh, unique dependence of checkpoint inhibitor activity on rig eye activation um, as a distinct pathway that um, is a part of its overarching effectiveness. And so when you have in a dysregulated immune system like that of a cancer patient, all of these intertwined dependencies, then you can see the importance of different types of immuno-oncology drugs for different patients depending on their, their sort of state, if you will. What are you doing in this area and where are you in development efforts there? Well, I think for us as a company and thinking about immuno-oncology, it really starts with the success we've had in the uh, Amplify vaccine platform. We announced last year a collaboration with the National Cancer Institute to help bring that platform to bear in in their so-called PREVENT program. And we've uh, started collaborations with additional academic institutions and uh, leaders in different cancer indications specifically to test out new uh, cancer vaccines based on our platform. And then in addition, uh, we have what we sometimes refer to as our Activate platform, which incorporates, again, the Lion formulation technology, but here instead pairs that formulation with small RNA agonists of the innate immune system. Uh, I mentioned rig, the RIG-I pathway. We also have an agonist of the TLR3 pathway. And so we are taking a rather comprehensive approach to thinking about the complexity of the immune system in cancer and the different ways that our underlying platforms can be brought to bear in, in affecting it. The company has been successful in securing non-dilutive funding in the form of grants. 
How much of your funding has come from these types of grants versus traditional sale of equity? And how much have you raised to date? Oh, let's see. We're, we're, we're probably north now of about $85 million in commitments across the different funding sources that you, you alluded to. On the government side, that's been places like NIAID under the NIH umbrella. I mentioned NCI, uh, BARDA, DOD. And, and then we've been fortunate enough to bring in about $12.5 million in equity funding largely from angel investors in a seed round that we we initially opened up back in 2020, but have brought on some follow-on investment. In. And then I should also mention that, because it, it, it aligns with the business model that we were discussing before, that a significant, probably now north of $10 million in revenues to the company have been realized through those international collaborations, um, which as I point out, for an early stage company like ours is material. And how far will existing funding take you? And what's the plan for raising additional capital? Well, we're, we're clear on funding through our U.S. Phase 1 clinical trial. We're working with the government um, under the next-gen COVID program to look at funding opportunities for Phase 2 development domestically. Under our OTA with BARDA and JPEO, we are funded through uh, FDA registration for both the uh, Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever and NEBA products. So we have a really strong foundation for the vaccine platform. Uh, we have a collaboration with the DOD on our RIG-I product through IND enabling activities. But it's really in the oncology area where we're looking at uh, additional equity fundraising opportunities. So we've started a, a sort of early conversations in a Series A raise process that would allow us to really go out and bring the platform to bear fully um, for cancer patients. Chris Peary, co-founder and chief operating officer of HDT Bio. Chris, thanks so much for your time today. Hey, thanks again for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.